Are dogs more or less complex than we think they are? Today, I'm joined by Sean McDaniel, owner, dog trainer, and behavior consultant of The Dog's Way. We talk through the psychology of dog training, from positive reinforcement to negative punishment, the best ways to mark good behavior, and how emotions play into building a relationship with the dog. They're not what you would expect. Welcome to Millennials with Machetes, the podcast that is guided by one question. How are millennials hacking their way through the thick of life? Hi, Trailblazers. JQ here. I'm your navigation guide slash host. And if you're ready, let's start swinging at these shrubs. Sean, thanks so much for joining me today. To set the stage for this conversation, Teresa and I bought a 12-week-old Shiba Inu puppy about four weeks ago, and so he's 12 weeks now. And part of what I wanted to follow up on the previous dog episode was, now that we're in training, you know, I'm realizing having owned dogs my entire life, I'm wondering if I've been actually training all of them wrong, especially as I start to dig into a lot of training Brooklyn, who's who's our Shiba. But so I figured just to kick us off, I'd love to get your thoughts on the dynamics of the dog training industry. What are your thoughts in terms of what separates the professional from, let's say, the side gig trainer? Because for the most part, you know, the dog training industry is unregulated, right? Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, Jay. It's been nice talking to you the last couple of times. And we've, uh, as we said, as before you started recording, we're covering a lot of topics here. So it's probably a good place to start that what what is the dog industry like? As you can tell, probably as you've been researching, there's a couple of things that happen when you get a dog. One of the things you realize is that everybody that you know that has a dog is a dog behavior expert now. <laughs> They've got advice on what you should always do and never do. and All the time. <laughs> and then usually the next step people kind of go to is they start researching the dog training kind of industry. They don't probably think about it that way, but they think about, well, I got YouTube, I've got Google, let's just start getting some information here and we can sort of drill down into what we need to find out for our particular situation. And what people usually find out, at least what they tell me after they talk to me for a while, is that there is just an avalanche of information out there. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is seemingly contradictory. You know, you read one article from a, quote, professional dog trainer, and it says, well, you know, Jay, always do X. And then mm-hmm. you read the next article that says, Jay, whatever you do, don't ever do X. That's the worst possible thing you could do. It can create a lot of that information anxiety in the way that people, I think, find with looking up nutrition advice or workout advice or starting a business advice. You've got lots of seemingly contradictory pieces of information out there. So I think I can probably give you a kind of an overview thumbnail sketch. I I think I'm probably not telling you things you don't really know, but there's kind of a spectrum out there Mm. where... There's the, at one end, I would call it sort of the purely positive mode or method of dog training. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of go down that spectrum to the, probably what's categorized as kind of older school punishment-based method of dog training. And that's because a lot of dog training back in the old days was previous to B.F. Skinner. I don't know if you remember B.F. Skinner mm-hmm. from Psychology yeah. 101. But he developed sort of and popularized a mode of learning called operant conditioning. It offered four different quadrants where you had positive reinforcement. When a dog does something you like, give them a treat. Mm -hmm. 
And then you've got three other quadrants. It gets really confusing because of the language that they use. So you've got positive reinforcement. That's give a dog a treat if they do something you like. You've got positive punishment. So kind of a weird term, positive punishment. No kidding. Is that like discipline? Yeah, that's like, I'll give you a sort of the little outline of that. All positive means in Skinner's terminology is you're adding something to the equation. Punishment means you're trying to dissuade something. And reinforcement means you're trying to make that thing happen more. So positive reinforcement, you're adding the treat to make the thing that just happened happen more. Recur, yeah. And so positive punishment, you're adding something to the equation. That might be a pop on a collar, pop on Mm -hmm. a leash to dissuade your dog from jumping up on the coffee table. Mm -hmm. So that's positive punishment. Then you've got, so those are the two positive quadrants. Then you've got negative reinforcement and negative punishment. So negative reinforcement, reinforcement, you're trying to make something happen more and negative you're taking something away. What would that look like? So negative reinforcement is, it's good to think about like a thing in everyday life. So Mm -hmm. when you get up, if you, unless you've trained yourself to get up at the same time every day, generally most of us use an alarm clock. So that beeping happens. And if you're really smart about it and you really have trouble getting out of bed, you put it across the room. Mm -hmm. Yep. The thing happens. And so to take that thing away, negative, you have to get up out of bed at a certain time. And then that thing stops. So negative reinforcement is taking something away, the annoying noise, and the reinforcement is trying to encourage you to get out of bed at a certain time. So in dog training, what that looks like is, so the thing you're taking away is usually something aversive or bad or something a dog doesn't like. And so that might be a technique. Older school dog training is that your dog hops up on the sofa where they're not supposed to be, and you tighten the leash and keep the tension there until they jump off the sofa. And then you loosen the leash. The reason that that becomes so confusing, negative reinforcement, is that technically it means you're taking something away, negative, Mm -hmm. to encourage something to happen more. Right. And so the problem with that is that to take it away, like with the alarm clock, you usually have to add it. The alarm clock wasn't a random event that occurred. So it, it sort of violates some of its own definitions when you're thinking about it. To your point about people giving you advice (laughs) the minute they find out that you have a puppy. One of the things was, oh yeah, you know, just shove a can or a jar full of pennies and just shake it whenever he does something you don't want. And I'm like, oh, okay. And as you're describing these four different quadrants, I'm like, is that negative reinforcement, (laughs) negative punishment? Well, you know, so you're right. There's a bit of that overlap. What was the last quadrant? Negative punishment, taking something away, negative and punishment to dissuade something. You could even think of that in terms of a toy. Your dog's playing with a toy and they get really rambunctious and you take the toy away or you put them away. You remove negative, you Mm -hmm. remove you. In kid raising, that's the time out. Mm -hmm. All of that thinking about like different quadrants and what methodology or technique should we use to have a dog or Skinner actually never worked with dogs. He worked with rodents and then pigeons because pigeons learned a little more quickly than rodents did. But the finessed way to communicate, the biggest addition I think Skinner added to the thing is is a bridging signal or a marker of behavior. So that's, you've probably heard of clicker training. That's a technology that marks behavior 
And it and technically, like if you're doing a learning experiment at the U, you would do a you would call it a bridging signal because it bridges the gap between the reinforcement or reward and the occurrence of the behavior. The problem with that is that if you had if you were a dolphin trainer before Skinner, and you know oh, dolphins like fish. I'm going to train the dolphin. I'm going to give the dolphin the fish every time it jumps out of the water and does that big jump that they like at the SeaWorld shows. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. would sit around on the side of the pool and you'd just randomly wait. And the dolphin would jump out of the pool and then you'd go, oh, great. And I'd grab a fish out of the bucket and I'd slap it on the water and the dolphin would come over and I'd throw the fish in his mouth and I'd go, hey, good job, buddy. Mm -hmm. I like that jump you did there nine seconds ago. You would think you're giving the fish to reinforce or reward the jump that happened nine seconds ago. And the dolphin would think they're getting the fish for coming over to the side of the pool. Mm-hmm. because that was the behavior that happened most closely in time to the reward so or reinforcement. Happened, yeah. And so that's Skinner solved that. That's what a bridging signal is or a marker of behavior. That's how people use a clicker in dog training a lot. I tend to not use a clicker. Mm-hmm. I usually use what I call a verbal marker. So I, I say the word good. Some people say yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can say whatever you want, but it's just, it's linked to a reward and a reward or reinforcement is anything that just has primary value. Right. Piece of food, petting, playing with a toy. You don't have to condition a dog to like playing with a toy if they like it mm-hmm. or condition positive physical attention. It has a primary value. So you link that neutral thing, a click sound or a yes sound or a good sound. Behavior. And then that's just a predictor of there's some reinforcement or reward showing up. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the <laughs> crash course overview on kind of Skinner and his stuff. The idea of the spectrum we were talking about, mm-hmm. generally the purely positive trainers generally focus on that positive reinforcement quadrant. That's like the majority of the training industry for the most part. No, I think it's pretty mixed. It's probably the most vocal part of the training industry. It's how I was originally trained and I'm not from like an ethics perspective. Yeah. I think the like the dog training organizations will sort of advocate for that. Every mm-hmm. article you read from a veterinary association will say, and remember, you know, positively reinforce what you want, use, use some yummy treats. And if a dog does something you don't like, just sort of ignore it. Yeah. And the ignoring the turning your back, if your dog jumps up on you, just turn your back. That's a postural signal but you're using that negative punishment that we talked about in that quadrant, meaning you're taking your attention away. Mm -hmm. So usually positive reinforcement and negative punishment are kind of the quadrants that the purely positive groups focus on. The reason that, that I don't put myself in that camp anymore is that it didn't work very well. (laughs) So, so some dogs you can do that with, you can use that methodology. Mm -hmm. I started running into a lot of situations that, that it just didn't work for mostly because it's actually sort of a naturalistic. What I mean by that is when I was in my first certification course, this is back uh, before the turn of the last century. And so we were being trained, you know, oh, don't use negative feedback with a dog. Don't correct a dog. Don't use that negative feedback. They can't even process it. It'll just cause problems. They'll just get resentful. It'll be, it'll be bad. Just use positive reinforcement when they do something good and then ignore when they do something bad and then hope they do something good again and then reward it and they'll get the idea eventually. Mm-hmm. 
I was being trained in that sort of philosophy. And at the same time, I was also volunteering in shelters and before and after hours, I was helping kind of train and socialize and exercise dogs just to the theory at the shelter that I was volunteering with was that if they were more trained and exercised and socialized, they would be more adoptable. And it turned out that was true. But what I noticed when I would take two or three dogs out of their individual runs and I take them to a little larger area and let them kind of play a little bit and socialize and exercise a bit, what I noticed was that they used positive and affirmatively negative feedback, quote, positive punishment with each other all the time. Now, there wasn't a dog fight and they weren't ripping their ears off or doing anything really untoward. They would use, and you kind of, if you've seen dogs interact with each other, say at a dog park or something like that. You've There's that moment this. where they, they snap a little bit and they're like, wait, this is too far. And yeah, that kind of can't. indicates to, to pause, right? Or to step yeah. away. Yeah, exactly. So they use a mixture of posture vocalization and physical contact to to say, you know, positively to say, hey, that was great. Let's play chase again. Mm-hmm. Or they use a mixture of posture, vocalization, and physical contact to say, whoa, whoa, whoa don't mount me. Mm-hmm. Don't bump into me like that. Don't, yep. That's unacceptable. Don't do that with me. And so that's when the light bulb kind of went off for me. I was, I literally, I remember I was in this get acquainted area, the larger area with two, three dogs, and they were kind of running around and doing a couple things. And these two dogs were kind of getting into it just a little bit. And one dog was just being a little pushier than the other dog wanted to be. And they did exactly that. They kind of snarled and kind of snapped a little bit and growled and postured. And then the other dog kind of backed off and adjusted what they were doing. And that's when like the weird thought in my head was like, oh, I guess dogs never read the purely positive dog communication book because it <laughs> doesn't seem to be the way they do it. That's when I started kind of looking around because what I started seeing in classes when I was sort of an, an assistant trainer was that there would be inevitably two or three dogs that were just kind of the rock stars. You know, oh man, look at Sparky and Rover over there. They're just right, doing, right. you know, they're, they're always their listening. Must, yeah, they, their owners must be doing homework. And oh, look at how look at how their owners are really doing stuff. And then you'd have a sliding spectrum of you know all the way down to the you know the last you know dog eleven and dog twelve and dog thirteen in the class that were just kind of a total train wreck. <laughs> Yeah, they're pulling at the leash and, you know, barking at another dog and knocking over the fence next to them and doing all kinds of stuff. And it was, it was really kind of highly dependent on how food motivated a dog was because they were food based classes. And if that dog sort of in their hierarchy of interests had food as just the primary interest, I don't care if there's other dogs here. I don't care if someone just walked in the door of the community center that we were at. Mm-hmm. I don't care about anything else. You have food. And that's my primary interest always, which isn't totally true because even those dogs where food outranked almost everything most of the time, when they were on their like 73rd treat, that's the the economics term. Over it. And economics yeah. 101, nobody understood as diminishing marginal returns mm-hmm. is that the 73rd treat just isn't as valuable and enticing as the first treat. I've had 72 treats, man. What What are the other factors that are like in addition to food, right? So food being one of the factors that is of value. You know, I imagine some of those other ones might be positive verbal, like, yeah, great job or, or playing and engaging with them. What What other factors are there in, in addition to that? Yeah. So positive social attention. Mm-hmm. Like you were just describing, either verbally or physically, you really pet a dog up and they go, wow, that feels good. And so that can be rewarding or reinforcing. Some dogs are really toy focused. Kind of those dogs that really like agility, those sort of OCD dogs about their fetch ball 
or tug mm-hmm. toy. So playing the game, that's that's a reward. That's a, a primary value. So those are all valuable things to know about. And my, I guess, to cut to the chase about kind of where I'm at now, my bias is definitely a more naturalistic bias in training. And that's just over, you know, a couple of decades of trial and error, experimentation, working with different trainers that have different methodologies and philosophies. I'm probably the other side of center from purely positive. We use positive reinforcement all the time in training. It's a key piece of training, but we also have kind of like those dogs I was describing. There's situations and behaviors that we go, oh, hey, don't do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we ha- we give negative feedback and go, oh, no, not cool. We don't jump up on that person or we don't jump up on the, the coffee table and steal the food. We don't do this. We don't do that. And we do do this. Good job. And so it's a it's a more balanced form of training. And what's kind of funny and it's always amusing to me, uh, group group psychology and group dynamics is really interesting to me because nowadays when you read articles, people will use balanced trainer as a pejorative. Mm. And so because it's obviously from someone that thinks that everything should be purely positive – if someone has positive and negative, then that's bad. Right. That's kind of what the industry looks like as kind of from the 30,000 foot level. Yeah, this is amazing. I'm really glad that you brought up the spectrum and the quadrants of, of positive to negative and reinforcement versus punishment. But I am curious, one thing that I'd like to layer on or layer into this conversation is the idea of emotions. So you've talked a lot about behavior and it seems like a lot of, as we talk about positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, a lot of that's surrounding action, right? You giving a command, dog either doing it, right? And then what you're using to tweak that piece. How do you see the emotional responses that a dog is having? How how does that play into training? And, And when I say that, I guess I'm looking at like the difference between being aggressive or fearful or playful or curious. Any thoughts on how emotional connection plays into training? Yeah, you mean from the dog's perspective, the dog's emotional. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it does play into training. And that's why I guess when I start training with folks, when I do in-person lessons with folks, what I do, I sort of describe as a relationship-based method. And so a lot of times we think of dogs and dog training in kind of the, the computer model. What programming do I have to put into this dog so that I can get the right command prompt? You know, what do I say for that, for the output to be this? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the wrong metaphor, I think. It's much more like human interaction. You kind of know that if you're at at a job and a new manager comes in, a smart manager, rather than kind of just laying down the law and saying, okay, everybody's showing up at eight now and we're going to do this and nobody's going to sit at their desk, we're all going to stand, and they just start ordering you around, most people kind of go, what? what's this guy's deal? Mm-hmm. And and you already kind of get this like, I don't know you. <laughs> what? Yeah, what a you bit of an offhand vibe. Yeah. It's the first time I met you. Like, what's going on? And so that's kind of, I guess, the, the human analogy I give people for sort of a relationship basis of training is that we want to kind of start building a relationship in a low stakes poker kind of way. And start to get a sense of the most basic things we can do. That's why what I do with with a dog at first is I do what's called loose leash walking, where all I do is I just, if they want to go east, I just kind of go west and go, oh, let's go. 
Let's go west. And they go, west, that sounds good. Let me lead the way. And I go, well, you know what? Let's go east. And and I just start getting this basic sense of like, ah, oh, let's just go my way. I'm not asking them to sit or down or stay or balance on a ball or do anything mm-hmm. that requires any real high order sort of problem solving or anything like that. It's just sort of a, a sense of kind of a leader follower relationship. And I'm not really asking that much. And so once you start to develop that relationship, that emotional component that you're talking about starts to kind of build as well. And so a dog starts to get a sense of like, oh, you seem kind of clear. You're pretty nice. You're, we're kind of doing, oh, are we out doing your thing? Oh, okay. That sounds cool. And, and you start to develop a real low stakes poker sort of interaction and relationship then as you start to build more complicated training tasks on top of that, the emotional sense from that dog is kind of agreement, mm-hmm. mostly, where they kind of go, oh, yeah, you're the one that was deciding where we go on the walk, right? So I guess you decide that we don't do this also, and you decide that we don't do that, or we do do this, or you like this. And so that emotional sense of things in the relationship building is kind of important. The expression of a dog's interaction with the outside world is something people think about when they think about like socializing. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I socialize a puppy? That's probably the mode you guys are in right now. 12 week old puppy. I've read lots about socializing. How do we socialize this puppy? <laughs> yep. That's kind of an EQ sort of emotional sense of the world. Like, how do we just interact with the world? The reason that individual relationship with each of you guys is important as a first step in socializing is that kind of imagine a a kid, like imagine a four or five-year-old kid where you go, you know, I want to socialize little Johnny. I'm going to take him to the park and just let him wander around on his own so he can get socialized to the park. Hmm. You might want to, with a three or four or five-year-old kid, you might want to do rather some active coaching with little Johnny at the park. Oh, that's a, that's a blackberry bush. Those are stinging nettles. That's a bobcat. (laughs) You know, you want to kind of point some things out. You want to let little Johnny fall down and skin his knee a little bit. You don't want to bubble wrap a kid. Right. But neither do you want to sort of throw the kid in the deep end of the pool to teach him to swim Mm -hmm. for most of us. That's more what socializing looks like. If you have, if you assign that socializing with little Johnny, little human out at the park to someone that Johnny just met and doesn't really know. There's no sense of that relationship, security, safety. Do I even look to this new babysitter to socialize me to what's happening in this situation? So that's why that relationship analogy um, with a little kid is sort of something I use sometimes when I'm talking to clients is that we want to really get that sense in your puppy or your new dog that you've just adopted to the idea that you kind of decide a lot of things around here. I decide where we go. I decide what some of the rules are. I've, I've got the food in my pocket. You're going to tactically really get some food if, you know, coincidentally you do something that I really like. Otherwise I'm going to yeah. guide you away from something or interrupt something else and, and give you kind of that negative feedback of like, oh, we don't do that around here. No, we don't just run it into the road. So that emotional sense of the world starts with kind of their emotional sense of, of you. We can actually be that guide for a puppy. Like what you've probably noticed with Sheba's, they're a little more curious because of that kind of hunting background. Get in mm-hmm. the brush, get in the, go get the bird, go get the rabbit. That kind of flushing hunting sort of DNA is a little bit more exploratory. 
pulling on that thread, actually, when you said loose leash walking is a low stakes poker game, instantly I had like a gut reaction, if I'm being honest, where I'm like, really? Low stakes? Because Brooklyn is, is such a curious dog and puppy. Right off the bat, it was, he's going to go this way. And there was this power dynamic of, wait, let's go east instead of west, to, to your point earlier. And he'd be like, nah, man, like, I'm not going west or east. I'm going to go north because that's, there's something interesting over there. And I I think we made a mistake early on, which we're now trying to fix, where the whole checking in while we're doing loose loose leash walking and and having attention come back to us, we didn't do that at all. It was more like slowly trying to see how to walk together. I'm curious on your thoughts of, of how do you pivot that, given that we haven't taken him out for too many weeks now at this point because he just got his shots last about a week ago so at this point it's kind of like how do you now start to shift it so yes there's the leader and follower mentality where you give him enough space to explore but also are able to redirect him in a different direction where it's like hey let's actually go this way right yeah and so the naturalistic bias that i was talking about before Part of that naturalistic bias that's sort of intuitive, and you'll you'll sort of catch this intuitively as I start to describe it, is that there's developmentally appropriate levels of difficulty for dogs in the same way that there's developmentally appropriate levels of difficulty for, for humans, mm-hmm. right? And we, we kind of intuitively know that. So we have, we actually have different training methods and techniques and expectations for little humans, right? The, the thought experiment I often give to people is that, you know, imagine you're in the grocery store and you see some parent with their toddler age kid, you know, two and a half year old kid, two year old kid, something, whatever you think is toddlerish. And, you know, little Susie picks up something off the shelf that they're not supposed to have. And the parent, I don't know how all parents learn this, but they do the parent counting technique, right? Oh, little Susie put that down. One, mm-hmm. two, three. And they, they do that, that you may, if you saw that interaction, you may like the technique or not like the technique or whatever, but you probably wouldn't roll your eyes and go like, oh, that parent is so weird. You you just kind of go, oh, okay, at least they're not letting the kid go crazy in the store. That's mm-hmm. good, I suppose. That's how they're doing it. Yep. Right. But if you saw that same parent at the grocery store with their 17-year-old kid, <laughs> still going, Suzanne, one, two, three. Without being a developmental psychologist or a parenting expert, you probably rightly would roll your eyes and go like, seriously? Like, we're still doing the one, two, three technique with the 17-year-old kid? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I mean by naturalistically, developmentally appropriate levels of training. So that's sort of the philosophical backup for the loose leash walking. With an adult dog, we would just do kind of a sneak away sort of technique. Put a leash and collar on a dog. They go east. We go west. They run at a leash. We give them a little couple pops at the end of the leash. And these aren't big corrections usually for about 80% of dogs. It's it's like a pop, 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 jiggle, jiggle, jiggle. And then I just turn my back and go the other way. And the dog kind of looks around and goes, oh, are we going that way? And they go out in front of me. And I, then I turn around and go the other way. And we do this kind of, I don't talk much to them, to an adult dog. I let them kind of have more responsibility to kind of figure out the problem solving. But with a puppy... Same goal, but a, but a different set of interactive techniques. Based on where they're at, yeah. Yeah, mostly because just like with a little human, we understand that they have a shorter attention span. They don't have a lot of references for things in the world. 
And so we make tasks more simple for them, like saying one, two, three. We're setting a boundary, but we have lots of intermediate steps with a one, two, three counting technique. That's why the technique was developed with a little human. With a puppy in a loose leash walking exercise, I want to start in a low-level environment, so maybe just in your apartment or your house, and have them on leash. And with puppies, I use food all the time. I've always got a leash on a puppy. I've got food in one pocket, and I've got a chew toy that they like in the other pocket that they're allowed to have. And so those are the things I always have when I'm hanging around with a puppy. And so when the puppy just goes, hey, I'm going to go over here, I announce that I'm changing the equation. I'm, I'm going in another direction. So what I say is the puppy's name, Brooklyn, let's go. And then I make some noise and tap my leg and make some clicking sounds. And so literally what it sounds like if I'm at the other end of a leash and a puppy goes away from me, I go, Brooklyn, let's go. Hey, come on. Let's go. Hey. And I crouch down a little bit. I get smaller. You can do this experiment with Brooklyn is that if you are across the room and you just crouch down mm -hmm. or kneel down, Brooklyn will just come over to you. And sometimes. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it depends on what's there. Yeah. If you have raw steak on the ground and you crouch down, you're not even on the radar screen. But that getting smaller is just attractive. It's a more friendly sort of postural communication. And it's attractive to a puppy especially. So you would do all of those coaxing, kind of luring techniques to get Brooklyn to follow you. And then when they make that decision... And so what the decision looks like is they kind of go, oh, no, but there's a leaf, there's a thing. And you keep walking, you jiggle the end of the leash a little bit, and you keep tapping your leg and cooing and clucking. And then they go, oh, okay, I guess I'll come with you. You'll see the moment of decision when it happens where they go, oh, oh, okay, I guess I'll come your way. Right when that decision happens, that's the behavior that we want to mark with that bridging signal. I mm. say the word good. If you want to use a clicker, you can use a clicker. The reason I don't use a clicker is that if that's your way to mark behavior that I like, you literally have to have a clicker taped to the palm of your hand all day long. Yeah, we yesterday decided to stop using the clicker because it was an extra thing and we would be marking either a few seconds too late or a split second too late, you know? And so right. we cut it. And, and now we're trying to like figure out how to adapt to that where it's like, oh, so if we are just using yes, you know, are we getting the same results and how do we have to maybe take a few steps back in training to, to get back to where we were? Yeah. So just a sidebar thing on that is that when you're using a verbal marker, so here's the weird thing is that verbal markers are actually technically not as good as artificial markers, like a clicker. A clicker mm. is technically better. Because it's unique? Yes. It's well, it's, yeah, that's one thing. It's more, it's unique and it's more discreet. So there's a definitive, to define discrete for folks, it's the definitive starting and ending to... Versus my voice, which is constantly talking to him. Yeah. Very few people make this mistake. Sometimes kids make this mistake though. Like if you're doing clicker training with younger kids, they go, that sounds kind of cool. So they walk around with the dog going, <laughs> just clicking it because it sounds fun. <laughs> and the dog looks up and looks up and looks up and looks up. And finally the seventh click without... Desensitized. A treat... Yeah. Yeah. They just go, oh, I thought that meant a treat was coming, but I guess it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things you have to watch out for with a verbal marker is that good rule of thumb is that most people talk to their dog too much in general. And we come by it honestly as humans because we have big brains and we communicate in abstract verbal language a lot. 
and we kind of talk through stuff with this, probably not you guys, but you know, other people <laughs> talk through with their puppy where they, Hey, what do you got there, buddy? Hey, put mm, that down. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's go this way. Hey, do you want, I know that's a leaf. I know it's a leaf, but let's come on. Hey, let's go this way. Hey, what do you think about the, Oh, I, Hey, daddy's got an appointment. He's got an interview here coming up. Let's go. Come on. Let's go home. Let's go. I talk to Brooklyn all the time. <laughs> right. And, and the challenge, there's two challenges with that. One is that this verbal marker that we're talking about, if we just throw that yes or that good in, in that big word salad that's coming out of the sound hole in, the, in your head, then it doesn't have a very unique or discrete marking ability anymore. It's just one of those other things that's, that's a sound that you're making. The other thing that's a challenge with that is that if we are communicating specifically with specific words, no, leave it, don't, uh, 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 and we're we're attempting to affect a, a puppy's behavior, I'm really trying to say no to get the puppy to stop whatever, chewing on my shoelace. If I say that hoping to affect a puppy's behavior and I don't, and I continue repeating it, you get selective he- hearing and listening later on down the road. Yeah, well, you used the word before. It's literally desensitization methodology mm-hmm. where you expose a dog to a sound or a sight under what I would call minimum threshold, meaning it doesn't trigger a reaction. Yeah. And they just tune it out. It's interesting because we started off talking about this episode where it's like, oh, have we been training him all wrong? And, and it sounds like the common theme that you, for the most of our conversation have alluded to is that, you know, to each his or her own. But at the same time, it does sound like there are things that are, you know, I don't want to say like, maybe like bad parenting behavior that diminishes the effectiveness of training because of what you're doing. So to your point that you just made, repeating commands or desensitizing words that you would use as, you know, reinforcement. Are there any other bad parenting behaviors that you would say are common to that would diminish the effectiveness of training? One of the big things that I see is what I kind of mentioned already, which is just talk too much. So usually what I say to people is see if you can just go through a day or two where you, you only say things that have meaning. To the dog. Well, yeah. yeah, meaning there's an intent to what you're saying as opposed to sort of abstract verbal communications Mm. because dogs don't get those abstract verbal nuances that we have. We can communicate in abstract ideas. Oh, that's an expensive sofa. I just got that cleaned. Can you get off of there? It doesn't mean anything to them. Nothing to a dog. And dogs, to your emotional question, don't have self, as far as we know, don't have self-reflective abstract thought. Yeah like humans do. What I mean by that is there isn't a dog anywhere as far as we know that's sitting around in the backyard going, man, I should have been a police dog. You know, I haven't really done everything with my life that I wanted to do when I was a puppy and uh, in the way that we do a lot. Or even to that point, you know, oh man, I really shouldn't have pooped on the carpet. Um, Even that kind of reflection isn't really there either, you know? Yeah. Let me rethink that strategy from last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, it's not. And, and the good thing about that, that's one of the reasons we like dogs is because they're very adaptable because they're as, as far as we can tell right now, they're a little more straightforward and simple. Like dogs don't need to read the book, The Power of Now. They're kind of in the moment and they're mm-hmm. kind of interacting more simply in their environment. And it's one of the things we like about them. They kind of center us, they ground us. And that's one of the things we really like about them because we tend to be heavily involved in self-reflective abstract thought where we play all these fictional movies in our head 
or sounds in our head or can't redo conversations. And it's all fiction, has nothing to do with reality. We're just kind of psychologically processing stuff. So that's one of the things we like. But one of the challenges is if we use that overlay to communicate with dogs and explain things to them and why I want you to do this more and do this less, and then we get frustrated because we're sort of banging our head against the wall without a result. The dog gets frustrated because we're not communicating very clearly. And then we end up usually getting upset. So all of that kind of falls into the the bigger category probably of being a little too anthropomorphic. So mm. fancy Greek word that means just assigning human qualities to something that's not human. Right. And so it kind of goes back to that emotional question you were having too, is that do dogs have emotions? Sure. But they're not as complex, I think, as a lot of people assume when they become sort of that pet parent. It doesn't matter to me either way, as long as people understand that your dog isn't actually a kid. Oh, 100%. Because the challenge with that is that if you just, I mean, it's just a different language. It's a different worldview. And it's a little bit like, you know, if you went to France and really got upset that they didn't understand you while you tried to order in English, that's, that's probably a little counterproductive. <laughs> Maybe you should just learn some French. That's kind of what I talk about in, in lessons with people a lot is that dog training in a lot of ways is kind of a language lesson. And so if we just keep trying to speak our language with a dog, it can become sort of frustrating mm -hmm. for, for everybody concerned. Yeah. Um, Being much more intentional with, with how you are communicating. So I am hearing that talk less seems to be one of the, the best things that you can do. In addition to talking less, are there any other things that you would recommend in terms of maybe guiding principles or things to keep in mind that simplify how to approach good dog training? Especially with a puppy and socializing, sort of linking back to that socializing discussion we had is that socializing isn't just exposure to things. It's exposure with kind of active coaching. What I mean by that is that when we're out with a puppy, there's two primary foundational things we want to set up. One I'm going to lead the way. I'll decide what we're doing and where we're going and what we like and what we don't like. And so developing that sort of methodical leadership relationship, every time they make a follower decision, we want to mark and reinforce that. Mm -hmm. But the parallel lesson we're always teaching is we're always teaching self-management or nervous system management, the ability to recover from stimuli. That's really the one skill that makes any dog a quote unquote naturally good dog is the ability to recover from stimuli, the ability to manage their nervous system when there's a change in the environment. And so that settling decision or that settling behavior, in other words, you, you've probably seen this with Brooklyn where something new shows up and Brooklyn goes, whoa, whether that's out on a walk or a leaf blows by or someone mm -hmm. comes in the door and they lock in visually. And if they really get locked in, they're so locked in that they stop blinking and the neck gets tight and the body gets tight. And it could be, gregarious excitement. Oh, that's so-and-so. Let's go over and say hi. And they're super locked in on that distraction that just showed up. But their reaction to that change in the environment describes kind of a dog that's kind of naturally good. You, you might've heard people talk about this. Like usually it's their last dog where they kind of go, oh, that last dog, that's the best dog I ever had. Oh, I never talked to one trainer, didn't read one book, didn't go to one class. I could take that dog anywhere. And they might 
not have known obedience stuff, but what they're describing, if that's an accurate description, provided that person's not delusional and it's <laughs> accurate mm -hmm. to, you know, that, that dog, they're describing that skill. That dog could govern their nervous system or manage their nervous system when there was a change in the environment. I don't know where you got Brooklyn from, but if it was from a breeder, you, you probably had that breeder do a seven-week puppy aptitude assessment. And what they do in a seven-week puppy aptitude assessment is they do a lot of things, but two of the things they do is a sight startle sensitivity and a sound startle sensitivity assessment. Sounds really fancy, but you just take a puppy out of a litter and you pop an umbrella open in their face <laughs> as a sight startle. Mm. Every puppy that can see gets startled. Big silhouette changes suddenly in front of your face. But they're really looking at the secondary response of what happens when that sight startle occurs. Some puppies, you pop an umbrella open in their face, they get startled and run for the hills. Mm -hmm. Some puppies... They, Dig in. Yeah, they, they get startled and attack the umbrella. Mm -hmm. Some puppies, they get startled, they recover, sniff the ground, sniff their way up to the umbrella, sniff the umbrella, and they look back at the assessor like, okay, what's next? What are we doing now? And what I always tell people, and, and the sound startle is kind of the same exercise in a similar spectrum. It doesn't, it can be different as well a different reaction to sound as uh, the reaction to sight startle. But uh, you don't have to be a dog behavior expert to figure out which one of those three puppies you wanted. Mm -hmm. Right. You want the one that has the ability to recover from stimuli. Yeah. Settle in their nervous system and then just kind of move on. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the reason I tell people about that is that's that other parallel lesson we're always working on with, with any dog, but particularly puppies in socialization is we want to mark and reinforce follower decisions, and we want to mark and reinforce settling decisions. So that's that's kind of a, from your socialization, what should we focus on or what mistakes shouldn't we make? That's one of those pieces is we don't want to just expose a puppy to everything. We want to gradually, incrementally expose a puppy to more and more with active coaching. As long as they're making lots of following decisions and settling decisions, then we're kind of in that right area, that right working level. Because as far as success to failure in socializing or sit training or whatever it is you're doing, we want to have more successes than failures, but oh. we do want to have some failures. Yeah. So usually a three or four or five to one kind of ratio of success to failure. Because mm -hmm. then that acts as a, as a pretty good sounding board too, to, to what works and what doesn't. Yeah, exactly. And so you, it, well, it's, it's just descriptive of any of that kind of you stress that we would use to describe mm -hmm. like exercising. Yeah. Right. If you just went and lifted the same 10 pound weight every day at the gym, you don't have to be a fitness expert to figure out like, I don't know if I'm really progressing. Mm -hmm. It's been three years now. I'm lifting the same 10 pound weight the same number of times. You intuit, we intuitively know like, well, shouldn't I move on to the 12s and the 15s and go like that? And that's kind of what we want to do in training. But if you, so you don't want to always succeed, but you don't want to always fail either. Yeah. If I just keep showing up at the gym, trying to lift the 75 pound dumbbell with one arm, and failing every day, then I'm not really progressing either. So, mm -hmm. man, this is great. So there you go. Hopefully, you got all 147 pieces of information there. And <laughs> <laughs> no, Sean, I, I really do appreciate this. It's, it's great. I feel, I feel like we've talked a lot about, you know, different types of training, right? How to decide as an as a pet owner where to land on in terms of your personal preference, but also, you know, a lot around the desensitization piece. And more importantly, uh, managing following and settling as well. So we covered a lot today. Thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah, no worries. It's uh, lots of fun. I, I do this all day. And fortunately, I'm, I sort of found an industry that was 
was a hobby that became an industry for me, a, an avocation that became a vocation. So I love talking about it. So thanks for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Where, where can people find you? There's tons of free info. Uh, the Dog's Way podcast is a podcast that I do. There's, uh, gosh, I'd have to look at it, 90, I don't know, five or six episodes up there. They're anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. So there's literally hours of free information up there. We've got a blog as well, and you can find all that at thedogsway.com. We recorded this back when Brooklyn was only 12 weeks old, and he's now eight months old. We've gone from taking him out 12 times a day every two hours to three times a day as his bladder capacity has increased. He's gone through dog training, but there's still a lot that we can work on. And the hardest thing for us has been being consistent and pushing improvement in training as time goes on. And, you know, we get caught up in other things. But he is seriously the best dog ever. Thanks for listening. If you're not already on the Trailblazer community mailing list, hop on over to jq.com. That's J-A-Y. K-I-E-W.com slash podcast to sign up. That's the easiest way to provide me with direct feedback and get the latest updates on each episode. Would love to get your ideas on future topics, speakers, as I plan out season three and four. Until next time, keep picking up that poop. JQ out. <laughs>